This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. study name of the study is non-prescribed buprenorphine use mediates the relationship between heroin use and kratom use among a sample of polysubstance users these were all people in residential recovery programs in kentucky uh, the stated purpose of the study is quote to further examine survey data pertaining to lifetime and past year substance use reported by a sample of polysubstance users enrolled in residential peer-led recovery programs in kentucky in order to to determine concomitants of past year kratom use and to better understand drug preferences of past year kratom users so this the whole context of this is actually i think like 88 percent of these people had been incarcerated in the in the previous uh seven years before this uh the data was taken um 85 percent were were referred by the kentucky department of corrections uh this is appalachia which you know i think most people who listen to this know about the uh opioid overdose epidemic or whatever you want to call it that uh is is the focus is kind of centered in appalachia where uh there was a lot of prescriptions and there's a lot of poverty in this study it's uh 57 male mostly white mostly uh most of them had graduated high school at least and uh and a few of them have a, a quarter have like an associate's or vocational degree uh and like 14 percent have at least a bachelor's degree well so before we get a little too, too deep into the the methodology design um and the and the sample population i just wanted to note two things i'm not sure um, if we mentioned it, but this paper was published in 2019 and it's yeah. from um, an actually a really surprisingly interdisciplinary team uh, of researchers from University of Kentucky or University of Louisville. Um, but when I say interdisciplinary, I mean they have uh, researchers from the School of Social Work, the Center for Drug and Alcohol Research, the Sociology Department, the Behavioral Science Department, the Medicinal Chemistry Department, as well as the School of Law. Um, so given that this is a, you know, a survey based, like sort of socio-demographic analysis, um, that is with controlled substances, I think it's really encouraging. Um, it actually provides a lot of uh, support to their, their design of the study and then the subsequent analysis by having such a wide range of different researchers on, on this paper. Yeah, and I didn't uh, I didn't notice uh, the school of law one. I, uh, Dr. Uh, Kirsten Smith, I think she originally collected the data. Um, she I think she's originally from Kentucky. Um, I'm going to be interviewing her next week. She's currently at NIDA. Um, and then Oliver Grumman, we had on the podcast before. He's at University of Florida, and he's done some of the larger uh, Kratom surveys. But that's interesting that you say about um, the law, because a lot of these people were, uh, 85% were referred um, to 
the researcher, I think Dr. Smith, by the Department of Corrections in Kentucky. They were all in uh, in a rehab program. Right, right. Yeah. So um, they were essentially the investigators were trying to figure out uh, if people who are opiate dependent will intake kratom use more often um, and use more use more kratom more often uh, than those that don't have a history of opiate dependence. And if it's if there's a difference between heroin and, you know, street drugs versus prescription pharmaceuticals um, and, and how that relates to suboxone use. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, the the total number of recruits that they had was around 500 plus. I think they had around 475-ish um, total surveys that were valid. Uh, 85% were referred by the Department of Corrections. They were from five recovery centers across the state. They had uh, represented like large metropolis areas, smaller metropolis areas, rural locations, um, and that these uh, recruits who participated in the survey weren't provided any comp- uh, compensation, but it would not affect their enrollment in the treatment program that they were uh, mandated into or their actual sentence uh, for whatever they um, got sent to, to jail for uh, first as well. Yeah, so, um, and then just to highlight too a little the sociodemographic that you sort of went over. Uh, on average, the the individual was a third, 30 years old, 35 years old, 85% white, um, 50% sig- single uh, versus married, and then had at least a high school or equivalent uh, diploma uh, and worked full-time. That's how they described the, the sort of summary person uh, of the 475. Yeah, and, and I think a big focus of this is uh, what they call diverted buprenorphine. Now, for people who don't know, I'm sure most of the people who listen know about this already, but like uh, buprenorphine, like Subutex, or that's just buprenorphine, and Suboxone is with Naloxone, is what's in the past few years being uh, prescribed for, um, you know, uh, withdrawal and addiction and... and, OB uh, disorder, yeah. Yeah, OB use disorder, yeah. And, and, um, but what they talk about in in the title and throughout the paper is non-prescribed buprenorphine, or they call it, also called diverted buprenorphine, which is, you know, buying prescription pills on quote unquote the street like with somebody will get them from a doctor then resell them uh on on to other people like they don't actually need them but they know they can sell them for more than they're getting for them at the pharmacy so right yeah so people who sought out uh suboxone through a street source um versus from a, a professional like uh, medical treatment facility. Um, but I thought it was interesting too, in the introduction, they right off the bat talk about atrogenic opiate dependence and this desire to separate um, individuals who developed opiate use disorder uh, from harder street drugs or non-prescribed uses versus those who over a long period of time while treating a legitimate pain complaint or pain issue uh, have just been on prescription opiates for a very long time. That's called atrogenic opiate dependence. And it's a, it's an interesting discussion. I think they lay out um, saying that there is, you know, different factors involved in becoming uh, dependent on opiates, whether or not you're being subscribed them or or you're getting them from the street. Um, And so they're sort of trying to tease that apart a little bit. They, they even quoted that uh, Grunman's uh, uh, survey found that uh, of respondents who reported having used Kratom to mitigate withdrawal symptoms of current or previous drug 
dependency most reported that withdrawal symptoms stem from etrogenic opioid dependence, um, but a subset stem from illicit drug dependency. A lot of these uh, people in here were, you know, legitimately prescribed opioids. Certain percentage became uh, dependent on them. You know, and it's, um, I think, worthwhile pointing out that prior to the release of Oxycontin, um, the the long-term, like, uh, regular use of opiates for treatment of chronic pain uh, wasn't necessarily... um, popular or widespread. I mean, you basically had to have uh, cancer or some other like, you know, very uh, significant and obvious neurological damage or like um, uh, some uh, an indication that was causing you pain, but you generally wouldn't be put on opiate prescriptions for an extended period of time until uh, Oxycontin was developed and then explicitly marketed as a safe long-term uh, treatment for chronic pain conditions. And uh, I think we all know where that ended up. Yeah, and and I just like I'm I'm connected to the chronic pain people now that can't get any prescription at all because they're kind of overcorrecting for it now. And um, I had on Dr. Klein would tell you that you know it's still one percent that get be, get addicted, um, but they were just prescribing them to everybody. That's why they've the 1% becomes from a bigger sample size because of the overprescription. Um, I, I think a lot of these people are, who were focusing on this study, but, but there's a possibility that some had just been busted with drugs and they're probably in this uh, treatment program as a, as kind of a court order anyway, this, but the sample right. size are people who ha- definitely had used drugs any some kind of drug in the past uh, year, which is here we're talking about heroin, prescription opioids, sedatives, marijuana, cocaine, amphetamines, and non-prescribed buprenorphine, and kratom. You know, I think it's just worthwhile to do a refresher on the difference between addiction and dependency, too. Yeah. Um, Because I think by very definition, if someone's on, let's say, uh, Vicodin or Percocet for five years um, every day, they are, are by definition dependent on that mm-hmm. um, but being dependent on the on the medication doesn't necessarily mean that you're addicted um everybody has sort of a different threshold of, of what you know what classifies or counts as addiction versus dependence the way i've heard it most recently described is that uh, addiction has consequences so your uh social life your yeah. personal life uh, your work life is is being affected negatively there are consequences due to the use versus uh dependence in that like you're psychologically or physically um uh, uh used to or developed develop a tolerance and used to taking those on a daily basis um and it's i say that in the context of opiate use disorder uh doesn't necessarily mean that you're addicted it, it could also mean that you're dependent and so um in in this case, and I think broader throughout the throughout this, this whole article, um, they're talking about whether or not um, individuals who are dependent or have opiate use disorder they could have been addicted and, and brought into jail and arrested on some uh, illicit charges. Um, but there are also plenty of people out there who were taking the prescriptions for a long, long time um, and want to stop or either wean themselves off, and so their choices uh, come down to like. You know, kratom, uh, cannabis, uh, suboxone, methadone, uh, and the last two being medic, uh, medication-assisted treatment, where you need to go to a specialized doctor and get that from a professional, 
uh, medical provider, uh, or on the street. And so they're sort of teasing those sort of paths and exit ramps off of chronic opiate use in this paper. If there's a lot of poverty in Kentucky and Appalachian in general, and at one point it was pretty easy and cheap to get all these pills, but um, even it, it points out that um, uh, there aren't a lot of Medicaid-assisted treatment programs in Kentucky. No, few to no medication-assisted treatment providers in Kentucky counties. Authors considered... Um, and I thought this was very interesting, and I, I just want to touch on it. We could come back to it yeah. a little bit later on the back end, but... The authors of this paper seem to, and this was sort of one of my biggest, like, you know, underlines and and stars, uh, consider that non-prescribed or street-sourced Suboxone use is an is a form of opiate misuse or abuse. Okay. So, even if they're getting the same medication that they would get from a professional treatment center. Uh, if they're not getting it prescribed to them or they're buying it off the street, then that is an indicator of opiate use or abuse. Um, and, and the problem, like the opiate crisis problem would essentially get bigger if you consider this off, you know, off pad or off prescription um, sourcing of these medications, um, it, it, making the opiate crisis worse rather than these, the flip side of it would be they're getting this medication because they know that that's what they would get if they could find a doctor, if they could have a conversation with a doctor who would even, you know, uh, consider the prescription. Um, you could you could view it as uh, sort of the opiate crisis diminishing, I think, in that these people are just trying to get access to drugs that they would otherwise, but but couldn't because of cost uh, availability or just the you know the social sort of challenges of, of going into a doctor these days and asking for an opiate prescription. Uh, Medicaid assist treatment might not be accessible to opioid using subpopulations equitably, and harm reduction intervention shortfalls persist. And yeah, you, you said there are few few or no MAT providers in some Kentucky counties, and that's why they're going after diverted buprenorphine. And by the way, that's why people uh, use Kratom, because they can't they can't access and and by the way, there's a health insurance issue, I mean, in this country that I mean, only thirty three percent of the of the sample uh, of this are have full-time employment so i assume everybody else unless they're incarcerated doesn't have health insurance so they might you know still have these uh uh either opioid use disorder or addiction and it and there's every indication that um they even say there's a part where they talk about intravenous uh injection uh of like and there's very little intravenous injection of buprenorphine or kratom uh which they point to one study where a case study where there was an injection of kratom and uh, i think i've seen that one before i'm not sure if it's the same one in this study but the guy like just had like his arm was just like irritated for a week and it was unpleasant and like it didn't work and when I was uh, in my interview with Dr. Grumman, he said that's kind of an indication that, that people aren't trying to extract the alkaloids from Kratom and inject it. It's an indication that they're trying to heal from it rather than get high from it. Right, right. Yeah, an exit ramp. I, I think a lot of the even, like the buprenorphine, uh, trying to get trying to get like strips of Suboxone on the street the main motivation for buying illicit Suboxone is trying to treat yourself when no medical treatment is available, which would be consistent with, you know, how poor a lot of these counties are in Kentucky. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And given that 85% were referred to this research project by the Department of Corrections, it's also, I think, really important to note, to note and they do, um, mm-hmm. that the department, the, the opiate use disorder patients that are in custody of the Department of Corrections um, have limited opiate use disorder treatment options. They cannot use Suboxone or Methadone behind bars at the time of this paper was written. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that that has changed. Um, there was a, uh, uh, an article that I saw that basically laid out how the different states approach medically assisted uh, treatment options for, for prisoners. Um, Pennsylvania brought on a full-time MAP program coordinator in 2016. Um, I couldn't find any sort of expansion of that uh, for Kentucky. They say the Kentucky Department of Corrections does not permit or severely restricts the use of Suboxone and Methadone, despite evidence that uh, these drugs are potentially life-saving interventions uh, for corrections-involved opiate users. Um, and, And obviously, the Department of Corrections doesn't allow uh, prisoners with opiate use disorder to use kratom uh, nor cannabis, both I think, which can be argued to be effective treatments for opiate use disorder mm-hmm. while they're while they're uh, behind bars. Um, so there, are, you know, it's not just a it's not just a, a your drug versus our drug type situation. They are limited in the in the uh, official treatments, and they are also restricted from uh, kratom and cannabis. And both of which, I mean, essentially, if you get caught with kratom behind bars in Kentucky, it sounds like you are going to get charged as if it, you had heroin on. Yeah. Uh, yep. I was looking at that quote now. It says, uh, yeah. it, it says they consider that there's an appeal because like it doesn't show up on most drug screens, although that could be different today. Cause like there, you know, the companies that make drug tests are all about, releasing their latest kratom drug test um but uh it says although possession or suspected use of kratom can result in probation parole revocation similar to heroin possession so right right so i mean you really got the the deck stacked against you in this in this scenario if yeah if you're a prisoner i wonder what the suicide rates were among people with uh, addiction or or opioid use disorder in in Kentucky since they don't have this um I mean I know a guy that killed himself in prison prison he was a heroin addict and he got thrown in prison I think in Maryland and uh yeah he rather than withdraw uh or you know face whatever he had to face that he needed heroin for uh he killed himself and uh I wonder if uh those suicide rates that's all. But there's probably studies on that I should have looked up, but um, I wonder if there's a correlation between states that don't have any kind of uh, Medicaid-assisted treatment and uh, suicide rates among people who were incarcerated for, like, heroin possession or... I was going to say, uh, uh, another element that I looked into that I think is worth noting, and then we, could, we should probably phase in a, a little bit of the results here of what they found, yeah. but... Uh, this is a, a survey uh, research project. Um, the, the 475 or 503 people took the survey. Um, they uh, da, 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 um, took, they basically took it in a large like cafeteria within their treatment center or within the, the uh, Department of Corrections facility. Um, but I was basically looking up um, the honesty of prisoners in taking drug use related surveys. Um, I know for sure that um, just general population, 
Um, the way that the questions are asked, if you say yes, uh, then you're essentially admitting to being guilty of a federal crime. Um, you know, using the drug, uh, using a level one drug in the last year. And so they, they actually, you know, do say, uh, I'm trying to figure out right here. Okay, yeah. Um, did you use prescription opiates that were not prescribed to you? Um, if you answer that affirmatively, you're admitting guilty, uh, admitting guilty to a federal drug law. And when 85% of these guys come from the Department of Corrections, it's a, it's a really significantly loaded question. I mean, they, they made it clear that uh, your responses or participation in the survey wasn't going to affect your sentence or your ability and progress through the drug treatment program. Um, but you can understand how someone who maybe uh, got arrested for having Oxycontin or getting a prescription opiate versus a, a heroin opiate wouldn't want to then say, oh, yeah, I also obtained uh, heroin off the street and use that in the last year. You're admitting to yeah. a drug violation. Yeah. And so overall, I mean, it's well known that in these survey studies that people don't like to admit um, when they've broken the law, especially if they're already in jail. Um, so that, you know, there was ways that they could have, uh, asked those questions that would have been less loaded, you know, yeah. use prescription opiates. That's it. Dropping the, that were not prescribed to you part, I think would have been helpful. I mean, in this sample, there were 25% were currently incarcerated and also in the program, 85 had been incarcerated in the previous seven years. So they might even have a worse, um, a bigger motive to, uh, lie right. about, uh, yeah, current drug use. That, that presumably, even if you're out on parole, you're still like committed to this treatment program. Yeah. So you know, answering yes to that um, puts those people that are like out now at bigger risk for potentially going back. And, you know, no really, because much... it's, it's past year use. So it's recent use. So the, some of these people that ha may have been in this program, if they've been in the program for over a year, and they're admitting to past year drug use that could totally affect their their parole and stuff. And and I, I it that's actually not listed in the limitations. I don't think it is. Um, go over it again, but I don't I don't notice that it's listed in the limitations. But yeah, that seems to be like a, maybe yeah, one of the limitations. Oh, for sure, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's a limitation for broader surveys related to illegal behavior in general. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. find any specific things related to like prisoner honesty in drug use surveys while in, in you know, while incarcerated. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it, luckily they have so many, you know, they have 475 plus that they actually counted towards the statistical analysis. So there's some cushion there. Um, but, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta realize that the questions could have been phrased a little bit uh, less loaded um, and, and perhaps a, allowed for a little bit more honesty there. No matter how, how many, you know, no matter how clear or in written or verbally you tell somebody who's behind bars for drugs that what their and them, even though it's an anonymized survey too, their answers won't affect their, their term or their sentence there. They, they, these guys are innately skeptical of anything coming from these authority figures anyway. And the other question I wanted to, I want, I wish they would have asked was about health insurance. Like, do you have health insurance? And is that why you could get uh, medicated assisted treatment, which 
there aren't many programs there or is that why you get prescription drugs why did you take these drugs was it for pain was it to get high you're right i mean the, the cost of the medical treatment of course is a huge factor in determining whether or not people are, are going to be able to proceed with it um the other element is the sort of sociological taboo factor of given how much crackdown and, and tightening the restrictions have been on prescribing opiates, but then also particularly these um, treatment opiates. Um, as far as I'm aware, in order to get prescribed Suboxone or Methadone for opiate use disorder, you basically have to have a signed uh, statement saying that you are admitting to or stating that you have opiate use disorder. Um, and that can be a big hurdle for a lot of people to get over. Definitely. There, there's there's just still that shame element attached to it, which is, I, I, I don't know anything else that can cure that policy-wise other than legalizing all drugs or at least decriminalizing them. Uh, so people can just like basically come out of the drug closet and be like, yeah, I use these, uh, you know, and not have to worry about being incarcerated for it. And right, I mean, right. well, I mean, the whole shame thing runs deeper than that. There's, you know, family issues and whatnot, especially if you're a parent. There's just a lot of stuff to unpack that uh, hopefully we're progressing on. But uh, I, I guess when we get to the results, um, so heroin was the preferred drug for the majority of Kratom users. Uh, it says, as were amphetamines, others preferred prescription opiates, uh, non-prescribed bup. Um, only 6.25% listed Kratom among their top three preferred substances. And within that 6.25, all ranked Kratom third. In other words, no respondent rated Kratom as his or her most preferred drug. You know, I thought it was interesting, too. Of all of these people, I think it was only... 10% of the respondents said that they had used Kratom uh, or were familiar with Kratom. I thought that was a low number uh, overall. Yeah. Only 10% reported Kratom use in the past year, which, which seems low uh, to me. I, I, I think I think the data was collected in 2017, too. Uh, uh, so that might have uh, had been a factor because I, I just think it's like going up exponentially in popularity. Um, but that might have been that might be i might have a bias there because i only started writing uh learning about kratom in 2018 so yeah i don't know uh yeah but but i think that's another indication that it's it's preferred drug i I mean depending on how the questioning was it preferred for what purpose uh preferred might mean you know I, it would ask which one makes me feel the best, and if most of these are heroin users, I'm sure you know heroin feels a lot better than kratom does. So <laughs> that might have been uh, how, why they answered it that way. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The question wasn't necessarily um, what are you using to like on your exit off of harder opiate use or, or opiate dependence. It was which of these drugs do you prefer? So if you had a buffet in front of you, which would you prefer? And, and Kratom was at the bottom of the list, which I think it, you know, is a is a is a is a benefit of Kratom in that it's not uh, as um, intense and potent uh, as like, you know, intravenous injection of, of some of these opiates. So I think yeah. it, I think it actually works in cannabis or in Kratom's favor to say that um, it's it's not the most preferred uh, drug of these past users. 
And it said, uh, past your use of non-prescribed buprenorphine partially mediated the re- relationship between past year heroin use and kratom reuse, explaining approximately 36% of the association between the two drugs. Sobel tests not shown confirm the significance of mediation. So what are Sobel tests and what like exactly does this mean? Does it mean like buprenorphine was an exit ramp to Kratom from heroin? Is that essentially what that means? Or and that's, I, it's, a, it's a great question. And you know, one of the only unanswered questions I had that I pulled out of it was um, what, what are they actually referring to in this um, 36% of the association between the two drugs? Um, so maybe that's something that you can ask uh, uh, Kirsten, uh, next week, you know, to just Definitely. sort of break out the the 36% association between the two drugs. Um, the specific test that you mentioned, and I don't have it right in front of me, um, but that's just a, a statistical analysis in order to determine, like, um, you're looking at uh, all of the drugs that they reported using in the past year, then you're focusing in on it and saying, okay, um, if you were using non-prescribed Suboxone, uh, in the past year, or if you were using heroin in the past year, how likely was that to affect whether or not you used, uh, Kratom? Yeah. And so I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, what they're saying basically is that, um, use of heroin over the past year significantly was associated with Kratom use, but not the prescription opiates. So seemingly Kratom is being used two and a half times more so by those that are on a heroin exit ramp from a street source versus those who were on a prescription um, dependence or um, even non-prescribed prescription dependence. But basically it's saying people that use, people that are trying to, to wean themselves off or treat the withdrawal or the effects of past heroin use are going to create them more often than those who were um, became dependent based on prescription use. A lot of people I've heard from have gotten, uh, you know, they they've they were on Suboxone and they just got tired of that. They just felt like it was the same sort of uh, yeah, lifestyle as the heroin. Whereas whereas the kratom, it's like you can you can leave it for a couple days. I mean, this is you know this is just anecdotal, but it's uh, I've heard that over and over again. And and they'll they'll do their suboxone strips and stuff, but then they end up you know going running through their uh, quota of suboxone, then trying to get quote unquote diverted or non prescribed suboxone from the street. And it's kind of the same thing. It's it doesn't it doesn't hit you as hard as the heroin or whatever. And it, but it's still you're still addicted. You still want to get more. You're still finding yourself, you know, waiting for uh, some dealer to show up to give you some more boxing strips. Whereas Kratom, I mean, you can buy it legally as much as you want for one thing, but for another thing, the addiction uh, isn't as intense. I mean, from what? what I heard from people, it's not. This isn't a medical, you know, medically backed, whatever. You can take it or leave it much more than you even even on suboxone yeah yeah i think you know in basic language it's essentially suggesting that people who are trying to get off heroin are using kratom while that those are uh, trying to move away from pills uh, prescription pills do not seek out kratom as strongly and, and i think you're you're right in in all the sort of influences that you mentioned just now um but but i think 
just how strenuous it is and the sort of requirements and the reporting and how often you have to go to the doctor. Um, It's not easy and it's not cheap uh, to maintain Mm -hmm. uh, treatment with methadone or Suboxone. Not as easy as it should be um, where, you know, I've heard that you have to go basically to the doctor every day to get your Suboxone in some cases, um, or you're at least going every week, you're getting drug tested the whole time. All of that stuff costs money. Co-pays, some people have to travel, yeah. Like, yeah, significant distances to do that. And so um, access to Kratom uh, seems to be uh, an alternative that people select, particularly heroin users select um, uh, when, they're, when they're on that exit ramp. And, you know, there's a few, you know, a few questions I'll pose to you on this. You know, does this mean that prescription opiates are easier to quit than heroin? Or, or does it say anything about... Um, the the access to prescription opiates versus the illegal access pass or the current access to, to suboxone i think so i you know I, I don't have like firsthand experience with that but i i know now that i'm a legal medical marijuana card holder in pennsylvania works for me because i don't smoke that much marijuana but my people i know that smoke tons of marijuana it has it is there's no reason they should get a card because it's so much more expensive and it's probably a bigger pain in the ass whereas they just have to hang out with whatever friend they have that sells them weed once a week it probably you know you know it's a lot funner than driving to the other side of town for dispensary and it's way less expensive and i assume that's kind of the same parallel to getting legal um Suboxone versus Kratom. Kratom and Kratom's legal, so (laughs) there's like not a risk to buying and possessing it as well. Um, And and you can get as much as you want. You know, if you need some more, you can take more. If if you need less, you can take less. Especially for people in Kentucky and Appalachia and rural communities. And and there was another issue about um, that they brought up in here. Uh, people in rural communities, uh, you know, have, might have to drive an hour, two hours to the nearest doctor in like Lexington or something to to uh, get their uh, prescriptions. So it, it's also at this point, I think there's no official sort of policy or guidelines. So it's up to each individual doctor whether or not um, someone could be a medical cannabis patient and consume medical cannabis, even from legal avenues, and also be on medication-assisted treatment for opiate use disorder. Mm. Um, it's certainly a precarious place in that, you, you know, maybe your doctor thinks that you should not be using both at the same time, and then therefore you have to choose. Um, I think the, the wiser doctors are, you know, sort of dealing with it on an individual basis, but it's certainly is a risk um, if you use cannabis, even legal medical cannabis, that they might take you off the Suboxone. And so that's another sort of hurdle into maintaining that type of treatment. Yeah, yeah. It's clear kind of the policies have to change because it's it's pretty complex and and there's different reasons that people go into different things and there's and there's this, just this whole still drug war mentality that kind of just says people are drug seeking when they're they might be dependent and in pain. The whole criminal aspect of it kind of screws with the screws with people getting proper care and everything. And it's 
it's just kind right. of a mess, and we have to have like massive policy changes, I think, to really address the issue. I mean, everybody, it's uh, poverty is a big issue too. The reason people become addicted is because of trauma and living in that kind of poverty. That I mean, in West Virginia, Kentucky, and I mean, even Ohio and Pennsylvania, where we are, it's 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 uh, traumatizing, and that's why people turn to uh drugs in the first place because it just sucks being poor and that's kind of the only thing you have to look forward to sometimes yeah yeah and i mean it certainly is a uh reaction to the fact that we in the u.s continue to create uh, treat opiate use disorder as a sort of like failure of morality and will you know Mm -hmm. and a criminal justice issue uh versus the medical issue that it is um their study essentially, you know, seems to suggest or it looks like those that are on illicit, uh, illicit street side of things to, to detox and withdrawal and for the management of opiate uh, use disorder, they're taking things into their own hands using Kratom or dealer source Suboxone non-prescribed rather than going uh, to a doctor and asking for the, the medical, uh, the, me- the methadone or the, the Suboxone. Um, yeah. You know, I think it, it it certainly highlights the fact that the recent spotlighting and clamping down on the prescriptions has made the conversation between doctors and patients much more difficult, as strenuous enough that it's essentially being avoided completely with people going to, to use Kratom over the, the MAT therapies. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it, uh, it, we definitely need to recast this issue as it properly is as a medical issue rather than a, a criminal justice issue. And I, I think, you know, some of the interesting conclusions that they lay out in the paper here, um, to me, are not steps in the right direction. In particular, in the conclusion, they say something, they, they start talking about um, the Kratom policy. So there's uncertain Kratom policy listed in the conclusion, and I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, because the, the authors lay out sort of all of the stuff that, that we generally talk about. So whether or not Kratom's safe, it's unique pharmacology, whether or not the products are adulterated, um, is there sensationalized or sort of drug, you know, drug warrior media coverage, yeah. uh, the, the conflation of Kratom with other synthetic, you know, novel compounds. The one thing that they don't particularly call out, which I think is is uh, one that we have to call out for, is that they don't mention the FDA or DEA's repeated and still uncorrected uh, data reported that misrepresents at best uh, and fraudulent at worst. You know, they, they mention insufficient information, but that makes it seem as if um, there's not enough scientific data collected on the topic. Uh, whereas I think the you know what we have been harping on at least in the past few episodes has been that the FDA is either purposely or um, uh, in in uh, you know willfully ignorant of the fact that what they're reporting is not uh, representative of what the actual data is, and and that's what was behind their sort of letters of concern and their import violations. So I think it I think the authors. Uh, you know, could have stood to include that uh, in the in the mix as well here. And they quoted concerns about prohibition, like uh, that uh, people would have to go back to heroin and, and whatnot. But they could at least say um, some of the FDA's arguments have been insubstantial or, you know, just kind of what we went over with, with the... Yeah, uncorrected, at least. At yeah. the very least, that it, uncorrected. You know, they've been called out as... Uh, having some issues, but they still sort of trudge forth with those issues uh, remaining. 
the biggest whoa, whoa, whoa for me when I was reading this, um, and I think the authors do. I, I think the authors did a, did a great job with the study overall. I was glad that it was such an, a, a well skilled team to pull this type of information together. You know, in journal clubs, it's just sort of natural to be a little bit overcritical. Um, but overall, I think that they found pretty valuable information. Um, but uh, at the end, they start saying and suggesting basically that that further limiting or restricting access to Kratom products will increase the opiate use disorders patients' willingness to seek professional uh, medication-assisted treatment. So they're basically like suggesting that if we prohibit or ban or limit Kratom access, then maybe the people who have opiate use disorder will then they'll go to the doctor versus just getting it off the street or, or so through some other illicit manner. And it's, it, that, that was really scary to me. The idea that a scientific team would suggest to, to reg, uh, regulators um, to enact more criminal justice penalties for this health issue by preventing access to what they acknowledge as a harm reduction technique, the use of Kratom, um, could lead to people getting their treatment, the medically assisted treatment, uh, was something that just sort of made me, you know, really freak out and that like, are they really going to wrap up this paper and this study by <laughs> saying, look, it seems like people who are trying to get off heroin are using Kratom, they're not going to use methadone or Suboxone. We should actually make it harder to get Kratom, then maybe those people will go seek professional opiate use disorder treatment. That you know, that really scared me. I don't know if you, you yeah. noticed that. No, I'm looking at that and in, in, in my printed out article I underlined it. And uh, but okay, in their defense it says after that sentence it says yet the high rates of non prescribed buprenorphine use among individuals in the sample indicates that some people using heroin or prescription opioids make procure harm reduction medications illicitly independently of formal medical channels uh in other words denied access to kratom people with a history of illicit drug use may still procure prohibited drugs but still that's not exactly uh, saying uh we should have kratom available to everybody who wants to use it as they see fit uh, which I think, you know, it's as it is now, it's pretty safe. People are doing that. And, you know, a lot right. of people aren't talking to doc doctors. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they definitely saved themselves at the end. You know, when I saw that, that paragraph starting out like that, I was just like, you know, basically like rubbing the highlighter into the paper until it started like, you know, working through it. Like, <laughs> oh, no. Um, but you're right. They saved themselves at the end of this paragraph, essentially acknowledging that restricting access to Kratom would be restricting harm reduction options uh, and 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 uh, reducing access to harm reduction treatment options is very concerning, they say. Um, and any decrease in accessible harm reduction avenues for people with opiate use disorder is concerning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they definitely, you know, sort of pulled the shoot at the very end there. Um, <laughs> it, it scares me though, because, you know, you don't, it's always a bit of a wild card, how regulators interpret and what they remember when they're reading the scientific information. And I, it would have been, um, I think much more helpful uh, for the conclusion to sort of discuss the fact that uh people are using Kratom, uh, it is a harm reduction option and avenue for people with opiate use disorder. And in fact, those who are incarcerated should have ac more access to be able to use Kratom in these scenarios or even medical cannabis um, versus, you know, hinting at the suggestion that if we take Kratom away, 
maybe they'll get into the proper lane. Uh, that that's just scary to me. I you know I thought it was interesting. They mentioned specifically um, that the the respondents in the survey were asked to report on past year of quote kratom use. Uh, they did not capture the variability of strain type or product brands. Um, mm-hmm. but, but more so than, than brand or strain, which is just essentially marketing claims, not scientific claims, um, they should particularly be interested in the method of administration and the dosing. So whether or not it was oral, a liquid, a capsule, a tincture, a, a powder, yeah. how much were people using and how frequently were they using, uh, I think is ultimately more important than the brand or uh, strain, you know, mar- marketing factors, not necessarily psychopharmacology factors. Um, whether or not it was taken with other substances or food. Um, but it, it, it is very nice to hear you mention that uh, there are ongoing studies happening right now where laboratory testing is, you know, they're allowing people to send in what they're consuming to the laboratory to actually verify whether the, the Kratom is actually being used is Kratom or it's an adulterated product, um, you know, similar to Kratom. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they, they did, I think they did a good job here of laying out those limitations. Um, I thought it was interesting that the last note that I had on this limitation section was that, um, they say similarly fentanyl was not listed as a survey item. Um, but it's likely that some respondents had consumed that, fentanyl yeah, in the last yeah. year. And I was just curious why, you know, if they knew that, why would they purposefully lead, leave fentanyl out of the, you know, out of the equation? And it's, you know, I think it's that, that fentanyl is certainly sort of like taking the forefront of everybody's attention in mind because, you know, at first you were just breaking the law when you were buying uh, prescriptions that were not prescribed to you off the street. Um, but I think it's certainly the case now that, you know, there are um, pretty convincing counterfeit pills that are being pressed together by these illicit actors Um that are, you know, not, they don't even contain the reported active opiate. They contain fentanyl. And of course you then run the risk of overdose and death there. So it's, it's not necessarily that it costs much or that you're breaking the law. Now there's really no way to discern whether or not you're getting a real prescription or a real pill off the street, unless you're getting it prescribed and picking it up at the pharmacy yourself. It's it's just a lot scarier now. Um, Yeah. You know, I think that also supports uh, people making the less risky decision of of going with Kratom uh, or cannabis to to treat opiate use disorder than on the street Suboxone. I did want to share the resource that we pulled together for everybody. Um, So uh, obviously on these uh, biweekly journal clubs, uh, Brian and I pick a specific publication related to Kratom, generally one that has uh, recently been uh, published or made available. Um, and we, we read those papers and then we report back to you guys on, on our interpretations and reflections and, and the findings of those papers. Um, well, now uh, we were able to pull together a list, uh, an ongoing reference list of all of the papers and articles that we've been reading uh, and that continue to read uh, for the podcast. So uh, that's a publicly accessible reference list that anybody could get access to if you go to bit.ly, so bit.ly slash Kratom Sci PDFs. So Kratom SCI PDFs, Kratom Sci PDFs, bit.ly.com or bit.ly slash Kratom Sci PDFs. You'll be able to go there anytime. Just type that into a browser and you'll get a full reference list of the papers that um, we, we've either already reported on or ones that are in our queue to, to get to uh, in the next couple ones. 
We are grateful to the researchers for that wonderful study. Catch Jonathan Cachet at Jay Cachet. Find links to that study and others in the description. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.